Hello, Tim. Hey, Zach. What's up? What's up? What's it like when know. you've What's it like when you've uh, when you're being reintroduced to a guest that you haven't seen in eight years? Do you, do you get like giddy? Are you excited? Is it is it kind of like oh, I wonder what will, will happen here? Like what what do you what goes through your mind? Yeah, I'm excited. It is wild, just in the sense of when you think about how much how much has happened. I mean, when I mm -hmm. when when I first met our guest, I was so new to the game that I mean, I I was so so green and and to, to think about how much I've gained along the way in terms of startups investing the whole nine that is just I, if i look back to that time i'm i'm almost embarrassed that i was like well, man, how was... much of a how much of a fool did i make of myself because i knew nothing I think it was, we were trying to figure this out. Is it 2013, 2014 timeframe? Um, I, I brought in Paul Singh, who's our guest today uh, for Start Norfolk 3. I know that it was Start Norfolk 3. And I, the, the, the thing that for years, I, I, there's two things that I remember. One, his talk was phenomenal and it was great. And I was super happy for him to be here. But have, the other thing, somewhere? I, I'm sure I have it somewhere. Uh, I will look for it. I remember seeing on SlideShare that the deck was there and it was, I, I don't remember what it was. Maybe I'll look is that, for it. Is SlideShare um, still a thing? Yeah. Well, SlideShare was, was, was acquired by LinkedIn, right. I think. So I, I think if you type, Andrew, if you type like SlideShare, Hatch Norfolk, Paul Singh, something like that, Start Norfolk, Paul Singh, SlideShare, it'll probably pop up. Um, but what's interesting is I remember this. And I, I and what's funny is I picked up my wife from the airport the other day, and in the exact same scenario is still the same case. Here I am. I'm like somewhat nervous. I don't even know how I convinced you to come to town, Paul. But I get you in the car. You got your Starbucks coffee. I think it was when they had like those that that fourth level size too. So it was like Trenta. And we're driving in my Jeep, which is already a very like. Um, bumpy ride and i remember just hitting every pothole with you and i'm like here i am i brought this guy in you know and he's gonna spill his coffee 25 times because we're hitting every single pothole in norfolk and i'm taking the highway and it's just it was ridiculous i don't think you spilled your coffee and if you did you did a good job of hiding it but um thanks i'm thanks, a pro thanks for yeah you're, you're a pro and maybe the coffee was towards the bottom but it looked hot in your hand and and i don't know so my my thought is uh, if you are a city that's on the rise and you want to, you know, attract new talent and you want to bring people in and showcase your area, the first few miles, you should have good asphalt. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, we'll leave that to sort of the economic developers. But it, it's so interesting. Isn't it interesting what we all remember? Um, you know, like uh, on the other side of it, um, you know, I always so so not to jump too far ahead of this thing, but, you know, first off, I'm thankful to be on the show. And, and uh, like, like you said, Zach, it's probably been eight or nine years since I've been down there, you know, at least with you, but I go down there pretty often. Now my in-laws live down there. Um, we're about three hours away. So, but anyway, here's the point, like, you know, the, the open secret of how I started investing was just to go everywhere else, you know? And, and, and so like, you know, you said something there earlier about, you know, you don't know how you convinced me Well, the truth of the matter is that, uh, um, back then. And even now, like I just tell people, all you got to do is ask. I mean, most people don't ask in a scenario. Most people don't. That's the thing. And, and so like, you know, when you think about, you know, developing your local communities, building your startups, uh, whatever, I mean, just, just make the ask, you know, um, and you'll find that more and more people, especially now, I think investors are less worried about travel, but back then, uh, that was like rare. I mean, we were probably, I, I just, 
it wasn't you wouldn't normally see you know venture investors traveling anywhere they always just invest in their backyard or silicon valley and we just went the other way and and we can talk more about that i don't want to ramble too much but anyway excited to be here and and happy to uh chat about anything and everything that's helpful to, uh, helpful to the audience that's awesome do you look back uh, based on the intro do you look back at would you be embarrassed to, to re-listen to your talk from eight nine years ago or uh you pretty pretty sound on everything that you know and just just the markets have changed or the landscape has changed i mean who doesn't like look back at their old, like who doesn't like look at their Facebook memories and be like, Oh God, like everything, right. you got to look at everything with a little bit of a cringe factor. Um, so, you know, I would say that uh, I, I bet you, I see, I, I could probably go back and I, I probably have the PDF here still of the deck. Um, I bet you that the content has probably not changed all that much. You know, you were uh, with 500 at that time. Say what? Say one more time. You you were with five hundred at that time. So That's correct. It, it yeah. So, I, but um, yeah, the fundamental stuff hasn't changed, and it's you know I'm investing the same way these days now, almost a decade later. Um, but I would say my delivery. If I was going to critique anything, I'd probably just critique my delivery. Uh, uh, but I would I would say that about any talk I've ever given. So, uh, and that improves as you do more talks over time. Or what what would your advice be on something like that? I mean, to me. If someone asked me, how do I get better at giving an in-person in in performance? I would say start going live on Facebook every day because it's really weird when you're talking to a screen, how that improves it. But but for someone that has talked for a living like you have, like what would your advice be on something like that? Well, I mean, you know, I, this is going to sound like a cliche, but first of all, you got to get the reps in for whatever you're doing, right? Talking, investing, getting new skills, you got to put the reps in. And, and, and what I, what I would say about this is that, you know, in, in broad strokes, I would say success in whatever you want to do uh, today is really a function of the number of things you try or the number of times you try, um, which I know sounds like a cliche, but, you know, I think if we just look back to maybe our parents' generation, success, no matter what you looked at or how you looked at success or defined success, uh, way back then, it, it was really more of a function of how old you were, who you knew, what color your skin was, stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, it's about getting reps, you know? Um, so you think people are, you think people are afraid to do the reps? I think, okay, so this is going to sound really bad, but let's just, let me just say it. And then you guys can kind of crucify me here a little bit, you know? Uh, so America is a funny place sometimes. Um, and by the way, before anybody kills, I, you know, I'm a citizen, whatever, all that. But, but you know, I'm pro-America. I love it, right? But hear, hear me out. We have, like, the best, uh, like, we have bankruptcy laws. We have, like, we, as a, as a society, we, we have built laws that uh, allow people to try entrepreneurial things. And then there's a safety net in case something goes wrong. Bankruptcy laws. Now, I'm not saying that's fun, by the way. But now contrast that to the rest of the world, which makes up, by the way, like 95% of the population of the planet. Like if you if you go to like India or Africa or South America and your company doesn't work, you're on the hook. Like failure is not an option in those other places because you could change the outcome of your entire life negatively, you know, in one fell swoop. So that was a long way of saying that, you know, Yes, I don't think people try enough. Uh, they don't. They don't. They don't stretch themselves enough, and it's really tragic to see that it happens right here in America, 
more than most other places. Like we're afraid of failing because we're afraid of our friends saying something. We're afraid of failing for all these other like external reasons, but we have it so good, you know? And I, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't mean to like rant on that, but it's just such an irony to me because, you know, I've invested now in 56 countries. Um, you know, I've got portfolio companies all over the place. And there's a reason why most, if not almost all of them incorporate in the United States. Interesting. Of, of all the companies that you've invested in, you, gosh, I'm just, I would think that you would want to, if a company failed, I would think that one of the exit uh, conversations that you would have with that founder would be like, hey, I want to be the first person that, uh, that you contact when you start the next, the next venture, just based on how much you've learned by, quote unquote, failing along the way, that person would learn a whole lot more than that has never failed. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, so I think there's a couple questions in there, I think. But I would say a uh, short answer is yes. Um, uh, a, a lot of the folks that I have invested in now, let's see, I don't have a metric on this, but uh, I, off the top of my head, I can think of more than a couple times where we've invested, and I say we to make it sound bigger, it's just my wife and I, but like I can think of more than a couple times where we've invested in somebody that previously failed and that we had invested in previously as well. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the thing I would just say about that too is that um, this, here's an interesting point, by the way, that I don't think a lot of founders think about and a lot of people don't think about, but uh, let's talk about that failure stuff for a minute here. Um, when I think about the uh, companies in our portfolio that fail, um, okay, uh, let, me, let me phrase this a different way. If you and I grabbed 10 people off the street and said, what are the big risk factors to your startup or whatever? Tell me if you disagree. Nine out of 10 of those people would talk about things like uh, somebody bigger stealing their idea. Like it'd be all these external things, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and the most common one you hear is like, you know, you got to have a patent or like, like the, what if Google does it or whatever, right? Um, but in our data, you know, I've got, uh, uh, I've, I've, uh, signed about 3,200 term sheets now personally uh, through Results Junkies in the last 14 years now. And um, the number one reason for a company's fail is because they run out of money. Like we've never had a case where somebody, you know, got sued out of ex existence or their idea got stolen or anything like that. But, but here's where it gets really interesting. When you, when you actually kind of pull the covers back and you really look at those last 30 or 60 days prior to the failure, um, What's interesting about human behavior is that when we get stuck, when, when we're in a rut, when we're not in a good place mentally, what we do is we go back to the, the behaviors that make us feel the safest. So I'll just give you like a cliche example to make the point. Let's say that I've invested in a founder or founding team that is overly technical, right? Like they're coders and engineers and stuff like that. What you'll find in the data is that uh, in those last 30 to 60 days, when they see the kind of the, the wall coming at them, right, uh, you'll see these like very innocent sounding things that sound like the right thing to do happen. They'll say things like, okay, we, guys, we got to hustle. Uh, we've got to like build these other three features because, you know, we, we really, that's why, surely that's why people aren't buying this thing from me. So they go into the code and then they, and then, they still hit the wall. Um, and that's because in that, for example, with that example team, that's the thing that made them feel the safest. It's the thing that made them 
um, you know, feel like they had that sense of accomplishment or whatever. But the truth is they have to go external. What do you do when the wall's coming at you? You've got to go talk to more people. You got to go broad. Um, and, and so you got to pick up the phone and get back to sales. So if, if the wall's coming at you, you don't go inwards to the thing that you're most comfortable with. You got to go external to where more customers are, um, which, you know, by the way, regardless of what people think, whether it's a recession or not, like that's true now too, right? Like everybody said, like run a company today, everybody's like, oh, I don't know if there's a recession coming, but I'm going to like shore up my bank account or my economics, all that. Great. You should do that. That's common knowledge. Wonderful. But the second thing you should do that nobody really talks about when these kind of macro issues are happening is you better start expanding reach. You know, like uh, uh, just to put some simple napkin math to this, let's just say there is a recession. Again, I'm not saying I'm not a predictor or whatever, but let's just say there was one. Let's say that consumer spend drops 20% just for the sake of the argument. Well, that all things being equal for you to stay to, to keep your growth going, that means your reach, your audience reach needs to be 20% greater. And nobody really thinks about that. You know, when, when, we, when we talk about this uh, from the entrepreneurial side, like most people are like, okay, possible recession, shore up the bank account, close your funding, da da da, da. Those are obvious. Thank you, geniuses. <laughs> but, but the other side of that also is, is just as, if not more important, you know, like you've, you've got to increase the reach, however you do that in whatever industry you're in. So, uh, so after your just, you know, six minute rant right there, I'm going to use the word rant because <laughs> that was the kindest rant. thing you've said so far. I love it. <laughs> you're you're welcome. Um, I, I think of in, one yeah. word when I think of that, just being proactive, right? Those who are proactive see more success or see more opportunities to succeed than those that are not proactive. Right. And so oh, recession or not, whatever, it's like there's all just negative words associated with that. Right. But it's like those that are going to be proactive in this that are already uh, turning the wheel to try to bring in some new people for whatever, whether that be a customer, you know, talent, whatever. The proactive word in there is, is what I kept um, hearing you say, even though you never used that word, my words, because. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is like a philosophical thing, but I think you make luck. Sure. I don't think. I agree. Like, what is luck? I, I, I think you make it. And it's about like your opportunity surface area. Well, I think that, I think people get like super jealous of people, super jaded of people like, oh, that person did this. And it's like, hold on a second. Like my favorite commercial of all times is this Under Armour commercial by uh, Michael Phelps. And the, the tagline is basically something along the lines of it's what you do in the dark that puts you in the light. Right. And so by being proactive, by doing all this work is what makes you the greatest Olympian of all time. Not just because he's, you know, six, six and, and blessed with all this, uh, not, you know, God given ability. Sure, he has that. But how many people were have those God given abilities that never put in the work that he did? Right. And so if you're not willing to put in the work, maybe there's a reason why. And you can't just be super angry at these other people who are willing to do this stuff. Like I remember when I got um, I don't even know if you know this, Paul, like a, a year or two after you came down for Start Norfolk, which, by the way, was March 23rd, 2013, which is the last time we saw you because uh, I, I found a, a slide lot deck. less gray hairs back then <laughs> a lot and a lot less kids, yeah. too. There you go. Um, Two years after that, I was trying to sell an associate's company to a TV station. And in that uh, meeting, an opportunity came up for me to host a TV show. And I raised my hand. I mean, call that luck, call that whatever you want, being proactive. Like that was me seeing an opportunity and I went after it. 
And most people would have punted that opportunity and been like, well, I don't know how to do any of these things, so I'm not going to do it. Yet now I'm able to get in front of 25,000 people a week, which I wasn't able to do. Oh, and by the way, I'm getting paid to be in front of those 25,000 people. I don't even have to acquire them. I don't have to pay for them. And so, yes, we, we, um, we create our own luck, but also like you gotta, you gotta raise your damn hand. I think I've done an entire talk on just raise your hand, raise your hand to every freaking thing. Cause you never know what's going to happen. I, I like to tell people that my default answer to most things is yes. Um, so I, I, so I would agree with what you're saying there, by the way. Um, but on a related note, and I, and I obviously shut me off and let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. But on this note, one of the thing I just would say is that like, I think it's important that we all look at ourselves personally and professionally as media companies. And, and, and I realize like that may not be exciting to most people, but, but you know, here's the thing the, the, the thing about the internet is, is that it allows you to build incredibly valuable things in incredibly narrow verticals. So, so let me say that a different way uh, as an example. So, you know, 50 or 75 years ago, if you wanted to build a billion dollar company, you, you had to start off with a big pile of money. Uh, and that's primarily the requirement because back then to reach large audiences, the best way you had to do that was to then buy up all the newspaper ads, uh, buy up the TV ads, buy up the radio ads, because you know you just had to spray and pray. That's how it was when there wasn't very personalized um, sort of reach, there was no internet, that sort of thing. Um, but now let's contrast that to today. Uh, today, like if you've got a, let's just say there's some hobby that you do, it's, uh, I don't know, it's knitting in the gym or something. I don't know. Right. Like make an email list and just start talking about it. And is it going to be interesting to the most of the internet? Absolutely not. But that's not the goal. The goal is to, to just find the other thousand people around the world that, that think the same thing. Uh, and let me just kind of say this more bluntly. I think everybody should have an email list. And, and, I, and for, because in the worst case, whatever you define as the worst case, it's your insurance policy. You get laid off. Well, now you got 500 people or 5,000 people that, uh, you know, would probably want to help you find an opportunity, right? Uh, and then in the best case scenario, you use that list to amplify anything you are working on. Um, but there's no difference between, there's no difference to what you just said with being a media company, 100% agree, than trying to look at, you know, every night at eight o'clock, you turn on and you're the TV or, or your YouTube and you're trying to go, scroll through thumbnails and trying to figure out what you're going to do. At some point, you don't like what you see, right? It's not everyone yeah. likes everything and that's okay. And so stop trying to be everything to everyone. I mean, like that, yeah. you know, riches in the niches, yeah. if you will. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. <clears throat> Paul, I want to shift gears just a little bit here because one of the things that's really interesting about you is the fact that You've invested in a ton of companies, but you've also bootstrapped a really successful company. A pet peeve of mine is when I'm talking to founders and they give me every reason why something can't be done, as opposed to focusing on what things we control and what things that we can do to advance the ball forward. What, how, do, how does that work with you? Because I mean, that would just, when you're meeting with the founder, they're looking for investment. And then they come to you and, and tell you what can't be done. What is your response to them as someone who's built a really su uh, a successful bootstrap, a successful company? Um, well, there's a couple questions in there. So, so let me, so a couple things first off, I, I would say that like, um, 
you know, I, I, uh, the irony of, I guess what's ironic about me is that like, even though I invest in everybody else's businesses, um, my own personal success has always been bootstrapped. So from my first hosting company in the late nineties, uh, that was bootstrapped to even now, like, you know, we've got a great team at bump health and that's bootstrapped. And, but, but the irony is I invest in everybody else's businesses, but I won't let anybody invest in my own. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that got to see a therapist about that. I don't know. But, but I, 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 um, I, I want to make sure I answer your question, but I think there's a couple things in there. Like, can you, maybe you could just rephrase it a little bit so that I can. Yeah. Answer what, the right so what, what is the advice that you give founders when they uh, are telling you why something can't be done? Uh, is it the fact that they're just not thinking creatively? Uh Oh, I see their focus. Yeah, I, I see. Yeah. I, okay. So um, if I understand and, and, and keep me honest here, uh, if I, if I'm not answering the right question. So as I understand your question, what I would just say is that um, to put it simply, I think there's two stages to every company. I think there's the first stage, which is, will it work? And the second stage is how big could it be? The vast majority of entrepreneurs, um, get hung up on the second one. So they, you know, and, and, and you'll hear them say this in their pitches or in their conversations with you. They'll say things like, if we only have capture 1% of the market, if we only do this, or if we only do that, like they're, they're thinking about how big it could be. Um, but, but it's the first thing that they really need to be thinking about. And, and the answer to the first question, will it work? Um, is, is arguably the more important one. Like you don't need, you really, in, in this decade, you really shouldn't need a whole lot of cash, if any at all, to figure out if one person you don't know will buy it. Like that, to be very clear, to figure out if this thing will work, you just got to get one person you don't know to buy it or even pre-buy it. And no amount of money will make that better. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not mm -hmm. like all of a sudden, if I, if I wired you 10 million bucks right now, if if it wasn't going to get sold to one person, 10 million bucks isn't going to make it get sold to one person. D does that kind of make sense? Uh, where are yeah, people I mean, selling like, that somewhere though? Like where where is that coming from? Because you know, I've I've said that uh entrepreneurship has been pushed big because of things like Shark Tank, but they're talking about sales and stuff like that. Like who is sitting here uh expressing this this stuff to people? Is it schools? Is it people getting MBA? Like where where is that thought that it's, it's almost like you don't have to make money as long as you raise money in, in a situation is, you know, I, I want to get a shirt that says something like that. Well, like, I mean, raising coin don't mean making coin, but I, it, it seems that's, that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like trained in like, you know, social or sociology or whatever they call this uh, analysis. But I, but, but my little layman's thing here, I would say is, is that, um, Shark Tank, for better or for worse, and shows like it, for better or for worse, are the top performing shows on TV these days. And I think that speaks. So, again, like I said, I, I, I've invested in like 50 some countries now. Um, and what I find is that the, 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 the top performing TV shows or movies in a given culture or country will usually tell you a lot about where the mindset of its people are. Um, and I'll give you a, like a cliche example here just to make the point. So, for example, in the U.S., some of the best performing movies, for example, tend to be action movies. 
well, what does that say about our society? That our lives are mundane and we seek action and we love watching uh, things blow up on movies? I, I, I don't know, but that's kind of what it feels like. Conversely, like when I go to India for our investments there, uh, you know, the top performing movies are, are love stories. Well, what does that tell you about a society where, you know, arranged marriages are culturally the norm? Uh, that they're still seeking love, you know, and again, I, these are all just anecdotal. So now back to your question, look, it's no joke that entrepreneurial shows in the U.S. Uh, are the, the top primetime slots right now. And if you watch those shows, which I hate, by the way, but if you watch those shows and you did an analysis on where the TV or where the camera time is pointed, what you would find is that the majority of the time uh, is with a camera pointed at the investors. And it sets this expectation that the investors are the kingmakers. And that is just not true. It is not true. Like, uh, it, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm getting fired up about it. Because like the thing about it is, is invent, investors are not gatekeepers. Look, we're, we're not right all the time, right? I mean, look, I'm wrong nine out of 10 times and I, I don't even know. You know I got to invest anyway. But the, but the reality is that like, like, it, it, the founders are going to be the ones to do it. Like the default state of every company is failure. And the only people who are going to fix it are those, are, is the team. You know, the, the, the investors, we're just pumping gas into the rocket. We have no idea which way the rocket's going. It could be going straight for the ground for all we know. It, it, it might not even get so off true. the ground, right. you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think like to your question though, Zach, I think, uh, you know, media for better, or for worse, sort of like tells, not only tells you a lot about a society, but also shapes the opinion of society. And that's just how it goes. But um, I don't know. I, I spent a lot of time over the last decade or more now, like just, just spending an, a lot of time with founders and, and trying to reset them back to this idea that it doesn't really matter what I think. I mean, look, let me put it to you a different way. <laughs> I said no to companies like Uber and Airbnb in the same week, like a decade ago. Uh, and, and, you know, this, I think this was, uh, maybe I should have brought this up when you, um, Tim, when you were talking about like, sort of, you know, what do you regret about back, you know, back then, you know, um, the reality is that like every bad investment I've made, uh, professionally, I, I should say, um, is because I sort of projected my worldview hmm. or my opinion on the startup. So for example, I'll uh, just use an example like Airbnb, you know, it's 2010, yeah, I think it was 2010. It's like, hold on a minute. So you're saying that some stranger is going to be down the hallway from my family inside mm -hmm. my house? Is that what you're saying? Like, are you kidding me? But what changed right? in that? Because I think you could still make that well, statement and people would still be like, hmm. Well, right, 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 right. But hear me out. Like in hindsight, like, you know, I think a lot about the companies that I passed on over the last year or last decade or so. And what I find is that like, maybe I was right. But, the, but my opinion doesn't really matter. The, like what I should have looked at, for example, back then is the fact that they were booking rooms at music festivals or whatever. Like clearly somebody was gonna do this. So what did my opinion really matter? You know? And, and so like, you know, when I, when I talk to other investors too, uh, one, one thing I just keep talking to them about is like, just don't, don't every, every founder say, wants to know what an investor thinks. And, that is the dumbest question you could ask an investor at all. Like, okay, again, you guys got to wrangle me here. But like, if I went to Starbucks and the barista messed up nine out of 10 coffees, 
they would not be a barista very long. Do we agree? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now look at what you got going on in this show right now. I invest in 200 companies a year. I have the same failure rate, uh, you know, nine out of 10 companies, if I'm lucky, but people want to know what I think. How crazy is that? <laughs> That's insane. I don't know anything. No, but no investor does. And any investor that does think they know anything or says they know, it's like, it's probably like marketing or something. I don't know. But like, I, I, I always tell people I'm not a deal picker. I'm a portfolio constructor. Hmm. And that's the way I think about all my angel investing. Um, it's the way I think about uh, seeking opportunity inside of a business when you're building it. You know, like, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's just about like building a portfolio of skills, a portfolio of investments, a portfolio of career experiences and, and sort of using that to kind of, um, you know, make yourself more valuable, make yourself more successful, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, that, yeah, we're, that's really I'm interesting. Taking it all in, I'm taking you in a lot of directions you may not want to even go. So I'll be quiet. No, but, but it's interesting because I'll, I'll run into people that ask me what I do. And I'll mention that, uh, you know, that I'll invest in companies and, and like immediately they're like, oh man, well, I want to, I want to get in on some deals or something like that. And I'm like, and I just know the personality of them. It's like, you will never, ever be a successful investor because you care more about being right or wrong than you will ever listen to what the founder is saying or the direction or what could be, I'm not even going to waste my time talking to you about this because it, like you said, you do have to put your, your biases away aside and really think about the world that we live in and the direction that it could go. So it, it, what you said is it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. You know, I, um, uh, on this note, I, I talk a lot about this with other, um, people that aspire to be angels or whatever. And the, the long story there is, is that I think that amateur investors believe that capital deal flow and judgment are the differentiating factors, right? So, Hey, if I got the money, I got the capital, then I then I'm, I'm going to be able to play. Um, if I have judgment, if I have a good degree or I don't know, if I can somehow like make better judgments than other investors, I'm going to make some money. And then the third, they'll say, well, uh, deal flow. Like, I just see a lot of deal flow. Like, if I see a lot of deal flow, then I surely will make a lot of money. Um, the truth is, though, is that uh, the, the best indicator of portfolio performance, again, I'm speaking in the context of investing, but this can be applied to skills and professional skills as well, or professional careers as well. But access is the differentiator. Like, you, you, your money is as green as mine. Your time, your, an hour for you is the same hour for me. You know, like you and I see the same deal flow on angel list and whatever, right? But what it comes down to is in the most competitive deals, who, who will they let in? Because not every, you know, you know, I mean, cap tables aren't infinite. There's only a couple slots on there. So it really comes down to who does the founder like? Who does the founder think about? Uh, who does the founder trust more? Um, and this, again, this can apply to professional skills too, right? You know, you, you know, it, um, you could be the smartest person with the highest IQ with the, uh, you know, I don't know, best unique talent that, you know, whatever. But if, when an opportunity comes up and a million other people are now fighting for it, um, how will you differentiate? How will you separate yourself? How will you be thought of? Um, 
when when it gets competitive. But by the way, this is like really interesting uh, related to, and I know this is not the topic, but maybe for another time is like this whole debate right now that's happening across the planet, maybe across the country, I should say, about like work from home versus work from office in between. Da, da, da. Like I, I, I'm not going to like say that it's a black and white one or the other, but it does have pretty profound impact to employees, whether they realize it or not. Because like, you know, and, and again, I'm not on either side of this. I'm not saying like you have to do it one way or the other, but I, I think not enough people are talking about the um, repercussions of this. So for example, let, let's say, okay, so let's talk about just high level real quick and then you can shut me down here, but it's like, okay, the, the downside of being a fully in office company is that the only people that can work there are the ones that are near the office. The upside of working in the office is it is higher bandwidth. Like when you think about how humans communicate, it is higher bandwidth for better or for worse when you're in person. Okay. So um, do people debate that now? Like do people debate that aspect of it? Cause I feel like they're starting to try and be like, Oh, I can do that. Like I jokingly wrote something on Twitter this morning about just like sick days. Right. So like if you work from home and you get sick, do you still call in sick? Or do you work from home because you're okay there? And then I added this little piece, yeah, you know, about watching prices, right? Because people, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, but on the other side, it's like, you know, the, the, in terms of like not, let's just say you're fully remote. Well, for the employee, you get your time back, the employer, you don't have to spend money on an office anymore. But the, the underlying aspect of that that nobody talks about is like, what happens when you go fully remote as a society, as a company, whatever, is that like, now you're not your job, you know, like you're all competing, like more people are competing for that same job because now it's available. And how mm -hmm. do you differentiate it? Like, I'm not articulating this well, but I guess what I'm no, trying I think to say there's a is lot of it, other, I think there's a lot of sub-level stuff too. Like we talked about marriages and divorces over, you know, the pandemic and how many people work from home. And there's that aspect. There's the aspect of just talking to a computer screen all day and never having water cooler effect. Like, and I've worked from home for five plus years now. And there are definitely moments where I'm like, I've got to get, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably out of the three of us, the most, you know, uh, extroverted, you know, got to see people type of thing. There are times where I haven't seen people for a few days and I'm like, yo, I got to get the heck out of here. Like, I'll just go to the grocery store to go to the grocery store so that I can interact with someone. And like, I, I think there's a lot more pieces to this than just, and I think this is what you're saying is than just you're working from home, you're working in the office. Like there's a lot of stuff that is huge impacts on it. The financial aspects of it. When do companies start getting asked, oh, uh, um, I want you to pay for my Wi-Fi at my house now. I want you to start paying for this other stuff now. Like there's all this trickle effect that people are not talking about that I think is going to start coming in at some point as well. I, th I think, yeah, it's the Wild West right now. And I think everybody's going to have to kind of come to terms with it. I I've been working from home for like my entire career almost. You yeah. know, I'm 41 now and I've always been here. But but I guess the thing I would just say about it is be, just, just be conscious about what you're optimizing for. So for me, like here, let me just say, here's my worldview on this. Like this is not, you know, my company's view or anybody else's view. Like this is just how Paul thinks about it. Um, I, I think that there's no substitute for in-person. So, so let me just be more blunt. I think Zoom and Google Hangouts and all this stuff, this is great for maintaining relationships, but I think it's it's very hard to beat the the ability of in-person relationships when it comes to building relationships. Does that make sense? Like there's a build part of a relationship and then there's a uh, maintain. So for example, uh, you guys know, or you might know, like I travel a lot. Like, like, don't get me wrong. Like 
like, I want to be close to my kids. I only travel Mondays and Tuesdays, you know, uh, for work, you know, and so like wherever I'm going to go, that's what I do. It's like Monday to Tuesday, but like it, 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 it it's how I differentiate, like, you know, it not only to see my team, you know, at bump, but also when I'm out visiting my portfolio companies or startup events or whatever, like there's no substitute for shaking a hand, looking somebody in the eye, even if it is for 30 seconds, uh, you know, and, and all of a sudden, um, when you're now just one floating head on a big zoom investor conference, you, you know, I've got that relationship that the other 99 investors don't. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Is, is that one of the ways you differentiate yourself from the other investors out there is taking the time to spend it with founders and, and what other ways do you differentiate yourself to, to get on that cap table? Um, you know, I, I, I guess what I would just say is that I, um, I, I like, we're just, I, I like to try to think about what it means to be a founder funding other founders. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I, I, the, the thing is, like, I just want to give freely, you know, just give all the info out there. Um, actually, let me just be really blunt about this. So when I first started investing in startups 15 years ago, um, I looked around and I was, so, you know, I grew up in Virginia. Uh, and I still live here now. I'm, you know, right outside of DC. Uh, it's not a tech hub, despite what every economic developer wants to tell you, right? Um, but when I was trying to figure out, like, what is all this startup stuff that everybody's doing? Like, I didn't know what a startup was. When I started my first company 20 years ago, 22 years ago now, like, I didn't know that was what a startup was. I just, I was trying to pay for my forerunner, <laughs> you know? And I knew that if I had, if I could get 200 customers paying me like 800, uh, eight bucks a month, I could uh, have a nice car. Like, that's what I thought. And I was like, oh, that's okay. I can do that. Um, but uh, I guess what I'm just trying to say is like, I looked around and I was like, what are investors? What are these people doing? And I would like, they didn't have live streams. As you remember, like back in 2008, there were no live streams. If you wanted to go Very to difficult. an event, you got on an airplane or drove to wherever. And so I went mm -hmm. to like, you know, that tech crunch thing. I went to like startup demo days in Texas. I just flew wherever, anywhere they would let me in really. And I would just watch these investors and like, I, I don't know, uh, hopefully you guys can bleep me out here. Um, forgive my language, but I just remember distinctly watching this and in my head just thinking, and I, again, I hope I don't offend anybody here, but in my head, genuinely, I was like, God, these guys are just all grin fucking each other. And what I meant by that was that like, I would look at the audience. I remember distinctly one particular demo day where... Um, I was sitting there in the audience and I was looking at the audience, which predominantly is entrepreneurs or people that aspire to be entrepreneurs. And then up on the stage were like three really well-known VCs from like name brand firms. And I just distinctly remember looking at the audience, these people, these it's like 250 people in this auditorium that had come here in the hopes that they would learn something magical that would help them when they went home. And I remember looking at the stage and for like 40 minutes, these three investors just looked at each other and talked about assets under management, their next fundraise size. This is a demo day, by the way. This was a panel mm. at a demo day. But they were talking to each other as, you know, as if like the entrepreneurs didn't matter. And I just remember thinking like, we just have to go the other way. And that became like my mantra. It became like how we operated 500. It, it, you know, it, 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 that's, we just, we were just like, how do you become the anti right? uh, everything? Um, well, especially you know, in today's just, market, 
everybody enjoyed a bull market for the last 12 years. So they only know one way to think. And mm -hmm. so now everyone's going to have to force herself to think a different way because the landscape has completely changed. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it was long overdue, I think. Right. But well, yeah. but you know, on this note, by the way, like you read, you read about all these, you know, layoffs and all that stuff. Uh, let's just be really clear. Um, the, the, all that, those are market resets. Those companies that are laying off these people, those were companies that were highly overvalued, I believe, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just as recently as a year ago. Does that make sense? Right. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's not like when we think about like, um, you know, what's happening, uh, with like, you know, I think Carvana just laid off 2,500 people and, you know, all these other firm metas like rumored to be letting people go all this stuff. Look, the, the, the reality is that like, it, it's not like there's some doom and gloom, bad thing really happening. What's happening, I think, is that uh, the uh, valuations are coming back down to normal. Like, like, right. like if we look at kind of how growth should have happened without the pandemic, it would have been more linear for all companies. But then like the pandemic, particularly for online companies, the pandemic really like shot the growth up really fast. And so now what you're seeing is it's kind of coming back down to where it should have been. So it's like, there's really nothing fundamentally wrong with private companies today. Uh, it, it's really more that, hey, that, that, that $20 billion valuation or whatever you got last March, uh, you were operating one way. But now that capital has gotten a lot tighter, you've got to like kind of reset and, and prepare yourself for the fact that maybe you were really only worth five billion, but you've been operating as if you're you're valued at twenty, uh, and you better get ahead of it now and reset the company back to where it should be. That's not articulated very well, but you're to your point. Yeah, it's hard for people to kind of like grasp the idea that you have to tighten up. You know, it's and this is why, like you know, on the bootstrapping side, I was just telling our team at Bump on uh, this earlier this week for our all hands. I was like, here's the thing. You know, every other company today, so a lot of our competitors in the women's health space are venture funded, if not all of them, like all the ones that really matter are all venture funded anyway. Um, they're all having to deal with the same issue that we're talking about, where they have to buckle in, buckle down, tighten up, you know, reset all those things. It's business as usual for us. We've been bootstrapped for years. <laughs> we're staying bootstrapped. Uh, we're not operating any different. In fact, what we're doing a little different this year, if I, if I can just be really bold about it, is like, we're just dialing up the ambition, you know, like let's be ready to eat up the scraps or aqua hire the scraps of, uh, some of the flame outs over the next, you know, couple quarters, um, and just kind of start going more aggressive. You know, I, I think the, the actual phrase I used is let's, let's not continue to bootstrap. Let's bootstrap offensively this year, um, in preparation, because I think a lot of the, um, venture-funded folks are going to start flaming out. And this is true of a, a lot of different industries too, not just ours. So, uh, so I, I guess let me be more blunt. I think bootstrappers are going to be really well off this year. I would agree. Um, so if it, it's going to be fun. How, how do you define bootstrap? Uh, you're, you're not uh, dependent on outside capital. Like you're... you're um, like, I guess just, I don't know if there's a trick question here uh, baked into that, Zach, but I would just say, like, you're not dependent on outside capital. Like, your company will survive based on customer cash flow or customer revenue. Yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, I wasn't, um, 
no trick question here. I just think that people need to know that. And and then the other side of that, the investing side of 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 Paul says what? Like what? How do you? You've done. I think you said thirty two hundred deals. Did you say that, or did I hear that wrong? We like to say bets, but yeah. <laughs> okay, you've made thirty two hundred bets, according to my FanDuel account. I'm nowhere near. Um, which I, I, we should talk about that stuff too, anyway. Um, but um, you make two hundred bets a year. What what price range are these these investments, these bets in? Because I remember five hundred. I think there were twenty five to fifty k checks, and then you guys were doing the money ball strategy, where it was like, okay, if they start playing a little bit better, we'll bet on them a little bit more. Like, is it? Are you doing the same style now that you were before, but individually? Like, how 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 is? Yeah, m- money ball for startups is always. Yeah. Money ball for startups has always been my thing. So I like, yeah, I'm operating the same way. So my average initial check size is if we, depending on currencies and stuff like that, depending on the country and stuff like that, it kind of averages out to about 50,000 bucks. Um, I, I'm talking in the context of results junkies, by the way. So like, um, yeah, average initial check size right, right on 50 K plus or minus a little bit, just depending on currency and, and, and conversion rates and stuff like that. Um, but we have a saying, and I keep saying we to make it sound bigger. It's just my wife and I. But uh, we have a saying that, like, we really never want to be more than uh, 20% of the round either. So, like, um, you know, if you're raising 250 k like, you know, we're probably going to max out at about a 50 k check on that. Um, but if you're, let's say, in a Series A, Series B, like, we've been tracking you for a couple months, a couple years together, um, and now you're raising a $8 million Series A or whatever, well, we're going to try to, like, drive that up as well. Um, you know, and, and, and participate in that as well. So I, I don't know if I'm answering your question there, but, um, yeah, like average initial check size is about 50 K. Uh, but that doesn't really tell you the whole story because when you double down, you're doubling down big. Um, you know, so the, that math the, at 200 deals a day, a year is 10 million bucks. So you're making $10 million worth of bets a year. And then the, the follow on to that is, did you get a lot of that capital through stuff at 500 where you're able to just dump or, or how did, how were you able to I, acquire? That no, kind I, of I, I, um, the long and short of it is that I started my first business 23 or 24 years ago now, uh, in the, in the web hosting world. Uh, and I still own that business and extract the cash flows every quarter. Um, we're an infrastructure company, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't say too much about it, just given like uh, how how hacking goes these days. But um, uh, how about this? I'll just say that uh, data centers are a great business to be in. <laughs> is that what is that what Northern Virginia is the data data center capital of the world? Because it uh, seems we, like it. Yeah, I, I live in Loudoun County, uh, which used to be nothing when I was growing up here. I mean, I remember Loudoun Parkway, County Parkway was that gravel road. Remember that? Yeah, the county up here when I was growing up was like eight thousand people spread across the county. Um, I understand. I think I we're, we're like, I think we're now the second or third richest county in the country, and most of that's driven by the internet and government, right? Because a lot of the government fo- uh, contractors live out this way. Um, but yeah, we're you know, I'm not, I'm not in economic development here or anything like that, but we, um, yeah, like something like 70% of the world's internet traffic comes through here on any given mm. day. Um, I blame and Steve thing- Case. I blame Steve Case for all of this. He created all the traffic in Northern Virginia. He created all that mess. Like, and, and look, well, more power to him. He sold uh, AOL for uh, something like 170 something billion bucks, you know, good, good for him to be able to do that. But 
he well, created I mean, it's always fun to have an enemy, but the truth is it's driven by the laws of physics. So the laws of physics deter so the cloud, which we all use, right? You, 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 we're using the cloud right now. The fact of the matter is the cloud has to live in the dirt somewhere. And that dirt cannot be distributed geographically uh, far from itself. Like it has to, like physics matter. And so like, for like a ping time between my house and my data centers here is like four milliseconds or something like that. If I mm -hmm. went down to where you guys are, which isn't far, three hours from me by car, uh, ping times would be 13 milliseconds, maybe 15 milliseconds. Uh, and and if, if I was in India, for example, trying to reach these same data centers, it would be 40, 50 milliseconds, maybe. And that may not sound like a whole lot, but like the reality is, is that um, it kind of matters. And there's a reason why like people, as much as people talk about the cloud, what they don't like to remember or think about is that it lives in the dirt somewhere. And, um, you know, that's a real estate play. You know, like wait, you can't... so the cloud isn't a real thing? Like it's not really up there? Like, I mean, come on, Paul. Like you're you're like you're uh I think you know, there's but there's studies on this, by the way. Like, so for e-commerce, uh I, I can't remember if it was Walmart or e Amazon or whatever, but it's been corroborated for years now. But basically for every um I think it's for like every uh gosh, it's like every second of delay or something like that is a 1% decrease in conversion rate. Mm. Well, I remember when I wild. wrote my book, uh, when I wrote Anomaly uh, in 18, something like that, there was a stat that said 65% of shopping carts were left with an item in it, which I thought was mind blowing. Actually, you know, now I'm sorry. So there was a delay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, it's just, that was it. Actually, when I said that, I just realized like, I, I'm not, it's not even just like, um, I'm not even like paying you like, you know, face value, just smiling at you. Like, you know, um, with Bump Health, we operate uh, off of a framework called the Entrepreneur's Operating System. And there's a whole book and series of books on these things. But one of the things with that is that everybody has one metric they have to drive, right? Like, you know, and um, site speed to us matters so much so that our CTO and our co-founder, Brett, uh, the daily metric he reports to the leadership team is the average site speed from the prior day. Like it's that important. Hmm. And so like, you know, I want to know, was it 2.4 seconds? Was it 1.7? What was it? You know, and like, and we can see a direct correlation with the conversion rates. Um, by the way, back to the, using this to go back to like entrepreneurship. This is the other problem with entrepreneurs sometimes. They're just so romantic about how they make their money. They're so romantic about it. Like, here's the deal. You know, um, and this sounds so bad, but it's like, look, if you save somebody time and make them money, they will pay you. It's, it's really that simple. And that's why, like, when I hear a pitch and somebody's like, oh, well, you know, we're going to change the way I'm like, okay, okay, hold on, hold on. Like, I know I should change the fact that I don't go to the gym enough, but like, you're not going to change human behavior. <laughs> like, make it faster, make it more profitable, make it easier. Those are things people will pay for, but changing behavior it's just a, uh, that, that, like, that's just foolish. Yeah. Adding a, adding an item to a checklist is a very difficult thing. And uh, right. I don't think right. people grasp how difficult that item is. And it's like, you're changing someone's in, in the, the way they've done something forever. And mm, right. Yeah. Your solution is actually pretty difficult. Yeah. What, one and of the then questions when you're able to do it, gamifying yeah. it to keep them doing it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, people well, that's always why ask one, me, like, that's why one click happened, right? Because they were like getting that credit card out was so difficult. Then they figured out, oh, we can save their credit cards. I mean, now they're everywhere. But mm-hmm. that was a big deal back then. One of the questions I get quite often is like, hey, what should I build or whatever? I'm like, I have no idea. But but you know, <laughs> at a high level. <laughs> oh, I get it all the time. But you know, uh, what I t- really say to people is like, look. Um, so if you if you're really predisposed to like consumer things, let's say you really like the idea of building a consumer product, I think what you need to do is look for repetitive current behavior. Right. So like just like whatever that might be, like find like look around you, watch your friends, look over their shoulder at their phones, whatever. Just look for a repetitive behavior and see if there's something you could build there. Um, because you don't want to change behavior, but if you can make some repetitive behavior easier, funner, stickier, that could be interesting. But if you're predisposed to like, you know, B2B stuff, you know, selling to other businesses, um, look at the spreadsheets, like look at where, whatever that, like whatever business industry you like to play in, or, you know, just look for wherever there's a spreadsheet being used currently, because often like very few people wake up in the morning and they're like, gosh, I really am excited about that spreadsheet I'm going to work on today. Um, but, but usually spreadsheets are an indicator that there's something that's inefficient, you know, and maybe there's something, uh, and like you look at salesforce.com, what, what did it really replace? You know, uh, it replaced, uh, uh, the old spreadsheets from the mid two thousands that everybody used to track their leads. Mm. Uh, so, you know, in many ways, entrepreneurship today is no different than it was 15 or 20 years ago. The difference now, however, is that, more and more industries are ready to become tech enabled. Like I'm a big believer that the next 10 years, the biggest money to be made over the next 10 years is at the intersection of online and offline. Right. So for the first wave of the internet, you know, let's just in broad strokes here, let's call it like 1950 to 2000. Let's just call that the first phase of the internet. The biggest money to be made during that time period was infrastructure the chips, the wires, the fiber optics, the data centers, all that, right? We needed that infrastructure before we could go anywhere else. And then once that was in place, the second phase of the internet, if you will, was let's call it roughly 2000 to 2010, let's call it, uh, was really the rise of the uh, online space, uh, the the platforms like Facebook and eBay and PayPal, uh, you know, those sort of things. Um, And now we're sort of in this third phase uh, where um, now you have technology that's purely been used online to build massive industries is now able to permeate its way into offline industries. Um, you know, like that plumber that's coming to your house has got a smartphone now, you know, that, that wasn't the case as recently as five years ago, you know, they might've had an old Blackberry or something. So there's more opportunity than ever now for entrepreneurs, you know, and I, I think, uh, I, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm just like, overly optimistic and i suppose you have to be when you're investing in stuff and building stuff every day but um i don't know like i think that uh, (laughs) i always say to people it's like if you complain about not being able to raise money you're lazy or worse (laughs) you you talked about how it is interesting that's not the word you use but i i couldn't remember what it was but you, you talked about how you love bootstrapping bullish on bootstrapping, but you invest in 200 plus companies a year. There's a, seems like there is a disconnect there. What's the reason behind that? Uh, Are you asking like why, like why I personally, like, I I just want to make sure I answer the right part of that question. 
Like, why yeah, do I, mean, I do just, it that it way? Seem, it seems like you're a hypocrite. <laughs> uh, I, well, thank you. I would like to say I'm a capitalist, but okay. Uh, well, you know, look, well, I'm, I'm trying to say words that, you know, in the, uh, when we put this on the description, it says, you know, Paul Singh hypocrite on raising capital. <laughs> so then I can be headline heavy and, you know, yeah. then I actually well, said look, it I, and then people... Because I am okay, my own well, media company, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, first off, not every business, like some founders may not choose, may choose, like bootstrapping versus venture is not like a black and white thing. It's not like one is better than the other. Um, some industries require venture capital. I would say that particularly industries where it costs more than a million dollars to get off the ground require outside money. Um, some founders prefer outside money. You know, like, so, so the point is, though, is that it's not, I don't see it as being too hypocritical um, because there's just different strokes for different folks. Like, I may not want my people investing in my company, but that doesn't mean that there's not other ambitious founders out there that would like to raise money. But on a more personal note, look, I, I view venture, like, I view my angel investing. Okay, so I, I try to, if you were to, like, maybe take my way of thinking, my framework of thinking on a lot of things and simplified, it would come down to this. I, I reduce complex decisions all the way down to a simple bracket. What's my worst case? What's my best case? So for example, with angel investing, my worst case scenario is a 1x exposure on the downside. If I gave you 50 grand and I lost it, I'm capped out at a 50 grand loss. But if you crush it, well, that I, I theoretically have infinite upside. So on a risk-adjusted basis, as long as I can kind of figure out what you're doing and see how to frame it like that, I, I'm, I'm in, right? I view angel investing in the same context uh, as, or in a similar context as um, I see it as the wor in the worst case scenario, the angel investing is my street MBA. Like if you think about it this way, like, and I, again, I'm just gonna be really blunt here. Like uh, I'm investing, I've always invested my own money. You know, I, I'm an LP in 500, I, you know, but I, I've always been investing my own money. And here's the thing, if all those investments went to zero, it's still worth it to me because I'm getting monthly or quarterly updates from hundreds of companies. And even though I don't read them word for word, I'm, I'm, I'm able to assimilate them into trends and kind of have a, a street MBA that you couldn't pay for right now. You could go to the most blue chip Ivy League's MBA and the most recent case study you would get is like 15 years old and the intern work you'd get is like the scrappy stuff that no employee wanted to do at those big companies, right? So worst case scenario, I'm getting information about the market that I can use to build my own companies. And then um, best case scenario is I'm still getting that information and a piece of the upside. That on a risk adjusted basis, I don't see how you don't do it. In fact, I actually think people right now out there should be doing more of this. And the beauty of it is like, you don't have to have a lot of money. Like, you know, 10 million bucks a year might be what I'm doing, but that doesn't mean you have to do it. Like, here's the thing. And again, for the attorneys listening, this isn't advice, whatever the disclaimer is, right? But just hear me out. <laughs> hear me out. Like, let's say you have 10 grand that you want to invest. Let's just say you have 10 grand. Okay. Just as a big round number. The one, one example of an opportunity that's available today that wasn't available 10 years ago is AngelList. You can follow, you could put a thousand bucks into 10 deals on AngelList now. Like that's the minimum check size. That's pretty amazing, right? Because now all of a sudden you're getting 10 
investor reports on a monthly basis. That that's that's worth more than ten thousand bucks, right? So let's say you're a product. I'm making this up, but let's just say there's a listener here that's like a product manager at IBM. I don't know, right? And you're thinking like, gosh, what do I want to do with my life? You haven't figured it out yet. As an example, one possible answer here would be uh, use platforms like AngelList to be the last thousand bucks into 10 interesting deals or bets that are related to the kind of PM work that you do. And now you've got an asymmetric advantage against all other product managers because you're not only building your daytime experience right there in your company at IBM or whatever, right? But you're also in theory getting the, the monthly reports from 10 up and coming companies in a related industry that you can now assimilate into whatever you want to do. Like those, like that's the thing, right? We're all, there's this inf information asymmetry has always been a thing, but it's just more accessible to more people. Like it used to be that the only people like before the internet, you only got rich, however you want to define that, money, freedom, whatever. You only got rich if you were surrounded, physically surrounded by five or six other people that were in that same boat. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you to, basically to be rich, you had to be born into it, right? But, but like, mm -hmm. now it's a little different. Now you got platforms, you can like, I don't know. It's just so, it's so easy now. Like, if you asked me if I had to start over today, so like, 10 years ago or 15 years ago to, to start investing, I had to get on an airplane. I had to go before kids and family and all that stuff. I could go do 300 days on the road and meet founders and all that stuff because that was how you did it back then. There was no, there was no Zoom. There was no StreamYard. There was no Google Hangouts. There was none of that. Now, if I had to start over today in 2022, I would do the same thing, but without the travel. And I, and I wouldn't need all the initial startup capital either, right? Like you could do a thousand dollar follow on deals, you know, like I, I know you got to go, but I'll just use this last example here just to make the point. You guys are sitting in Norfolk, Virginia right now. I'm in Ashburn, right? So three hours North, right? If we, if, if, if we were having this conversation 15 years ago, we would have to agree that we're all going to have to get on the road and start meeting founders wherever and whatever. If we were having this conversation today in 2022 and we were like, man, we really need to kind of get ahead of the game here, figure out how to become the best investors, whatever, like we would just get on AngelList. We would just start looking at other deals. And now uh, from an asymmetric information standpoint, we'd have even more information to be able to vet the deals in our backyard, but also more information to like force our local companies to compete at an at a international level. Right. Like this is why, for example, for a separate episode later, I guess, is like why I'm so against angel groups. Like there's not you can't make money investing in your backyard. You can't make venture scale returns investing in your backyard. It, that's why? really hard because there's not there's not enough companies. Well, what, think about what, it this way. There? Let's think about it this way. So, so what I, just before I give you an example, I always tell people for every deal you do in your backyard, you must look at 10 deals somewhere else. And the answer, the question now is why to your question, right? What I would just say is, let's say you are, let, let's not even bring angel groups into this. Let's just say you guys want to do angel investing. And let's say that if I looked at your email inbox right now and uh, plotted all of the locations of the companies that are getting pitched to you, if they're all, let's say, within a 50-mile radius of your house, and let's just say you find the best, most interesting one within 50 miles of your house, and you write your check to it, 
is that really good though? Like what happens if, um, what if you had zoomed out and you find out that the best thing in your backyard is like, like not even on the playing field when it comes to like, you know, other companies around the world, like you can't, you can't be the best, at least for venture scale, right? For venture scale returns, you cannot limit yourself geographically. So the best founders, this is why I think founders should be doing angel investments, by the way, because like, you know, investors, we see for, for 200 deals, I might see 20, 30,000 decks, right? There's a lot of information asymmetry there, uh, but founders should be doing this. Entrepreneurs should be doing this. I mean, professionals should be doing this. The more stuff you see, so like this business, if you think about like, this is, I'm going to get philosophical here and then you got to shut me off. Like there are a lot of trends that are similar between the topics of bootstrapping your company, professional development, angel investing. They're all tied with a common thread. And that one common thread is, is that they are all about making fewer wrong decisions. Like if you, if you didn't, it, look, our lives, all of our lives would be better if we just knew what the right answer was all the time. Right. If I knew which company to invest in, I wouldn't need to do the other 200. If I knew what job would get me promoted or make me more money, I wouldn't have to learn all those other skills. Is that you know you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, precisely. So 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 when you think about why people need to be doing all this asymmetric stuff or to get all this asymmetric uh, info, it's not because I want to work to death and work 37 hours a day. It's because when you're dealing with decisions where um, you don't know the outcome. The goal is to make fewer less decisions. Oh, sorry, it's to make fewer wrong decisions rather than worrying about how to make more right decisions. This is why people misunderstand my model of Moneyball for Startups. They misunderstand the model entirely. They think that I should be doing more diligence, to which I say, you're not wrong, but diligence should be uh, scaled to the check size because the reality is there's not a lot of diligence anyway. And like, I'm just trying to, my first meetings with founders is about filtering out and then buying an option to the next round. That's really what it is, right? Because I don't know which ones are going to go to the next round. And by the time they get to the next round, it's so competitive. But now mm -hmm. I bought a seat on the cap table. The same could be applied to professional development, professional skills, bootstrapping, you know, like the goal is not to fight fair here. <laughs> I know that sounds horrible, right? But like most valuable things in life are competitive. And the goal I love is not competition. to Well, competition's usually a good indicator that it's worth doing. Sure. Th this is like when founders say like, "Oh no, this has never been done before." You're like, "Are you kidding me? Come on." <laughs> like it's 2022, you're telling well, me Well, especially when you then just Google something real quick and it's like, mm, "Ask Jeeves just right. told me you're lying." Like Right. 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 Yeah, but but I think like um Anyway, I, I, I know I'm like rambling all over the place here and I, I apologize, but I, I, I really do think that, you know, when we think about the headline of this, uh, what you guys posted online, it's like how much money is the right amount of money or whatever. Uh, I know you got to do it for the clicks or whatever, right? But like the, the, the truth is, is that no amount of money will fix the problem. Oh, sorry, no amount of outside money will fix whatever problems your business has. It won't get you, it won't get your business an inch off the ground. And also, it's not worth selling equity for that. You know, what you really ought to do if, you, if you're having trouble starting something, if, if, if you genuinely believe money is the thing that's holding you back, then scope back the ambition 
to, to try to get an inch off the ground without outside capital because money can accelerate the outcome, but it cannot like, it, it's not going to get that launch phase to go like that. That's really a function of how many times you pick up the phone to sell somebody something, you know? Yeah. I think that's, I think a lot of people, businesses think too, too far down the line instead of trying to figure that piece out right now. And I am, I think that's good advice. Yeah. Is, is there yeah. anything we haven't talked about today that you want to talk about? I mean, I like to talk, right? So, uh, no, I mean, we could go on for like a couple hours here, right? But, you know, I, 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 we already I, talked yourself on to an, another episode. So, I mean, we might as well just. <laughs> no, let's, yeah. I mean, seriously, let's we, do it. Like, we'll here, do it. here's the thing I, I posted a tweet about what I'm about to say a couple of weeks ago and it hit really well. And I, and I was half joking, but half serious. And I said, like, look, 90% of the reason why we've, you know, built Bump Health in public in a bootstrapped way is to show other bootstrapped founders that it's possible to be venture level ambitious while not depending on outside investors. Like it is possible to do that. And like, we're not geniuses, like no offense to our team. Like we're, we're, we're a great team. Right. But like, I always tell our team, like, we're not smarter than anybody else. But we think about like how many iterations we could do or how many tries we could make in a given time period. And it's just Moneyball. It's, it's Moneyball, honestly. It's like we have a higher likelihood of finding a winning conversion funnel or finding a new product line because we try like 50 things in a given month than a, a competitor or an incumbent might do 50 things in a decade. And that is so profoundly simple. But most companies, most founders don't think this way. Like, People can, people are mistakenly using the words entrepreneurship and innovation interchangeably. They are not the same. Bump well, health, for example. Yeah. Well, bump health. And again, every time I say bump health, whoever's listening to this, every time I say bump health, just replace the word with whatever you call your company because it's the same. So what I would say is bump health is in the business of entrepreneurship, not innovation. We're not going to Mars. Like, if we want to go to Mars, you got to innovate. You got to create life support systems, engines, uh, water reclamation. You got to do th those are innovations. You have to push the boundaries of human technology to do that. That is important work. That is not what we do at Bump Health. That is not what you probably do listening to this thing. You and I are in the business of entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is about looking at things that are already being, happening that, that we can make simpler. So, if you think about so bump health today. And again, I'm just going to use this as an example to kind of like give the listeners something to do that they can think about actionably till, till the next time we do this thing. Uh, what is bump health? Well, like, look, here's the thing at a high level, we have a couple different business units, our consumer business, our corporate business, our medical business, and a couple others. Right. But if you truly, and this is, if anybody on the team's listening to this, this is not an offensive thing to us, you know, hear me out. All we do is make, something that moms do already much easier. So for example, like our uh, earliest business unit bump boxes under our consumer division. Um, it, it, so my wife hates it when I say this, look, pregnancy month three in, in Virginia displays the same clinical issues as pregnancy month three in Portland, Maine. Do you see where I'm going with this? Like it is the same, clinically speaking, the human body does the same thing at the same time in any pregnancy. And so we know through clinical research what needs to happen. We know, for example, uh, when the nesting behavior starts. We know when you need to stop putting um, deodorants with 
uh, metallic issues on your body. Um, and we know that moms have been solving for these things for decades, hundreds of years. We just made it easier. Hey, pay one fee and the right things will show up at the right time for your pregnancy. People pay for convenience, right? Um, we look at, so, so uh, and again, that's just one example, but I just want the audience to have that. Like, like I, I, you probably don't need money to start. You probably just need to look at what your customer's already doing and honestly make, uh, figure out how to make that easier, faster, smoother, something like that, because people will pay for that. You know, like, like th th think about Twitter, by the way, as an example, like I give away all this information for free all the time, all the time. Everybody does, right? Like it, people don't want to pay for content anymore, but they will pay for aggregation. Hmm. Right? People don't like, it, when we think about like our business, like uh, they don't pay us because like, this is most companies, most companies think they like differentiate on product. That is not true. Like you differentiate on the feeling that you're selling, hmm. right? Look, mechanically, look, I'm an engineer, so I hate what I'm about to say. Mechanically speaking, a BMW is not really that different than a Honda. Mechanically speaking, okay? Like, don't kill me here, guys. Like, I'm an engineer too. <laughs> it hurts me to say that. But there's a reason why one of those brands sells for like 80K averages and the other sells for like 30K averages. And it's typically... Um, it's, but you see what I'm saying, right? It's not about the, 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 the products. It's really about how the customer feels about it. I mean, all the decisions we make as consumers uh, since the beginning of time is really not, as much as we all try to tell ourselves as customers that we're buying the right thing at the right time, the truth is most of our decisions about purchases as consumers, you and me and everybody listening, is about how we might look to others. We hate admitting that to ourselves. But like... Sex sells. You know, well, you know what we, uh, <laughs> my wife and I, we're going to get in so much trouble here. Please don't cancel <laughs> me here. My wife and I, we're good people. But we always say like, look, it's no different since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of time, the average consumer just wants to get paid, made, or laid. You make any of those things easier, you're going to be a great business, right? And just, and I know that sounds crass and all that stuff, but this is, Back to the whole topic of entrepreneurship and fundraising and stuff like that. So many founders, I get into this like, you know, naval, this creative navel gazing of like, what if the world was better? And I'm like, yeah, okay, well, um, I don't know. If you want to go change the world, go become an elected official and like use government to change that. Because that's, that's really, I think, you know, that's different. Look, we're, we're here to like make lives easier, faster, better using technology. Let's pick a niche. Let's just go after it. Just look at what people are doing already. Make it easier. And it's so simple. Like our biggest companies in our portfolio, if you really want to talk about financial returns, the best companies we have made an existing process easier. Like you look at like Twilio. What is Twilio? Well, Twilio uh, uh, makes push messages and text messages easier for developers. Well, prior to that, you had to like go get your own short code. You had to pay at least a thousand dollars a month. You had to do all these things. Twilio just made it easier, right? Um, talk desk. I mean, like the list goes on. Every large mm -hmm. company, every large valuable company uh, has simply replaced an easier alternative. Salesforce replaced a spreadsheet. They didn't actually 
change it. Anyway, I'm going on and on now, so I'll stop. But <laughs> well, you have you have the record now for the longest show ever. No, we we might be able to make this a two a two parter. Congratulations <laughs> on that. We're cutting you off now. Uh, no, I was gonna I say uh, you're welcome, and I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I think it's great. Do, you, do we have time to take that quick question, Zach? I'm good if you are. I I'm I'm good for another 15 minutes. This one. Yeah. The amount. I'll read it. The amount of taking risk depends on gut level or high level of experience and education. I don't have mentors like Warren Buffett. What's the bottom line advice to a new investor? Okay. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble for this. First of all, thanks for putting it on the screen because that was like a, uh, that was a little bit of word vomit there. Okay. Uh, Astro Tony, uh, I mean this in the nicest way possible. This is the type of question that people ask when they want to like seem like they're asking a question because it makes them feel like they're engaged, but this is not a real question. Like I like th this to me is a thinly veiled excuse for doing nothing. Okay. So like <laughs> Astro Tony, that was not a real question, but, but you know what? I'll humor you. Here's the thing. Like, I don't have mentors uh, like, like, like uh, Warren Buffett. I don't have any, any of that. Like I, like, I don't even know what that means. Like, here's my advice to you. If, if, if I understand your question or if I'm reading through it, it sounds like you want to invest some stuff that you don't really, you're not coming off the sidelines because you think you need like a Warren Buffett or somebody to give you advice or mentor you or whatever. Like, either admit to yourself that that's an excuse that you're always going to use. And even if Warren Buffett showed up on your doorstep, I guarantee you, you would have another excuse thinly veiled as a question tomorrow. So either admit that to yourself or on the other side, uh, be honest with yourself about what's actually holding you back. And then, and then try to look for the answer to that question. Like, you know, when I was starting to do angel investing, you know, uh, per, this is like pre 500. Uh, the question I kept asking myself, so everybody else would ask, why, how do you get started with investing? To me, I thought that was the dumbest question because to get started investing, you just write a check. That's what you do. But that's not the right question. The question is, how do you make money investing? And that question actually led me to start digging. And I started like loosely back in 2007, 2008, I started like looking at, okay, like how do you make money investing? Because getting started actually is easy. You just have to write the check. The question is, how do you make money? Well, then that led me down the path of like Googling and like, what is venture capital? Oh, this is like a pool of money. Okay. Wait, 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 hold on. So how does that work? They're like, they're doing like 10 deals a year. Well, huh, that's interesting. But then you go even further, you start pulling the thread and you're like, wait a second, venture funds are public. They are publicly registered entities. You can start to like read some more of their stuff and kind of back into how they're doing it. And then you're like, wait, but let's just say they're doing 10 deals a year wait a second, why is that? Like, what are they doing the other 350 days of the year? And so you see where I'm going with this. You just start to pull the thread, but ask the right question first. Um, I know that doesn't maybe win me very many friends or whatever, but like, I just want people to be successful. And like- He, you know, he seems to have taken it just just fine. Astro Tony, like, I love you, buddy. And, you know, I hope it didn't, that's probably not even your real name. I don't know. But, but like, hopefully other people get this too. Like, don't, I, like you can lie to other people. Don't lie to yourselves. Like that's the thing, right? Like, yeah. like you could tell me the sky's red. I don't care. Right. But don't lie to yourself about why you're not starting something, but it's, it's never what people say it is. 
that, that's why I said earlier, when I said like, when people complain about something, they usually are lazy or worse. Right. Because, well, because it's, it's, it, to me, it's like, why are they like, why are you worrying about this? Right. And so the, the, the simple answer to this or uh, example of this is right now people are complaining about gas. Right. Gas is four dollars and whatever sense. OK. But when gas was a dollar twenty, you weren't celebrating it. So, like, make up your mind in that thing. Yes, I understand things are more expensive, but, like, don't be mad when things, you know, six months ago, they're really cheap. It's like people like to complain. Uh I, you know, I have this like text chain with my uh, fraternity brothers and I don't know, we've just, you know, for 20 plus years, just always shooting the breeze. And I don't know, not my, I would not want that text chain to ever get out because I, we are all idiots. I'm 41 <laughs> and we all just talk like idiots on this thing together. But anyway, one of the questions that came up recently was like this idea of like FU money and this concept of FU money. And, um, you know, one of the guys asked like, hey, what, you know, what's, what's your all's number? And I thought it was really because there's odds of our group so like in entrepreneurship a bunch of the guys went into like law enforcement government defense contract it's just a big wide group right what i thought was really interesting was as the guys started responding everybody had like a nine to ten figure number right like they all had nine to ten figure numbers like gosh if i only had 10 mil one mil 30 mil like everybody it was just all over the place right and so i just responded and i was like hmm uh, are we asking about now at 41 or are we asking about like, you know, when we were getting out of college at 22 and, uh, the answer was both. I said, well, at 22, I think FU money would have been like four grand a month. And today with like three kids and a mortgage and all that stuff, I would say 15 grand a month or something. I don't know. And like, you would have thought I had like brought the gospel down from the heavens or something. And people are like, what the hell? How does that work? And I'm like, well, look, hear, hear me out. Like, what is FU money? To me, FU money is about getting freedom. And like, you guys are talking about like these big numbers, which, which mathematically I see what you're doing, right? Like, oh, if I just put $30 million into a, you know, a money market, I don't know, like a, you know, VIX or whatever, then all of a sudden, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that mathematically they were doing the right, but like it was entirely unattainable. So it was really just creative navel gazing. Mm -hmm. And this speaks to my point of like, just how I think about stuff where I'm like, well, how do you get there? Well, um, F you to me, like would be just, if you took everything I had, I, all I have to do now, if, if you took everything I have, everything that I've earned over the last 20 years away from me, I don't need to go make a couple hundred million bucks back or whatever. What I need to make is 15, 20 K just to like, that, that's a big number I know, but like, you know, it's just at this age, I don't know. I'm not old, but my bones are creaky, you know, <laughs> I gotta have a soft chair and stuff. So anyway, but like that's attainable. It's more attainable. It's not easy, but it's more attainable because now I can back into it with simple math. Yep. Um, and that's, I hope on a personal note, that's like the biggest lesson I hope people take is that like you're in more control of your future than you realize you know? Uh, so well, anyway, you take the 4,000 from when you were 22 and you live the same way when you're 41 and now you have 10,000 a month that you can start writing checks, taking reps, reading Seriously. deal memos and getting in the game. Seriously. Like that's the thing is like, I actually don't live any different than I did. In fact, I still live in Ashburn. I live five miles or maybe seven miles from where I grew up. Uh, the house is a modest home on a third of an acre. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I like what makes, okay. So this is going to sound bad, but I hope people see it in the positive light that I mean it in, which is 
what makes real entrepreneurs dangerous, you know, and, and I'll throw myself into that bucket, is that like, we're not romantic about how we make our money. And, and, and we understand that like, there's no pie in the sky thinking. It's like, just give me a number. Like I always tell people, I feel like a dog chasing a car. And what makes me dangerous and what makes other people like me dangerous is that like, we're not trying to like get all the cars or anything like that. I just, just give me one car to go after one number to go after. And that is much more attainable. Like you want to go get one sale this week, commit to uh, picking up the phone for 200 calls this week. You want to go raise a hundred K for your next startup. You want to raise a, a million dollars for your next startup. Show me that you're prepared for 500 investor meetings because 499 of them are going to be no's. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, People, that's the thing. People don't think that way. They think like, uh, gosh, if I only knew the right person, if I only mm -hmm. knew the right person or got the right intro or whatever, like that, that it, these are all like, they're just lies we tell ourselves so that we don't feel bad about not starting something. Love it. Paul Singh, long, second, now, second time saying this longest show ever. Great job. We'll have Great. you back on. Uh, you're welcome and i'm sorry <laughs> no it was great appreciate it Peace. well look i'm i'm really happy uh to have been here thank you guys for the opportunity if i can um help anybody my personal email is just paul at resultsjunkies.com or uh i'm pulsing on twitter but uh yeah really excited to have done it with you guys and hopefully it won't be eight years or nine years uh until we do it again <laughs> we'll think about it i love it all right fellas well thanks so much Thank you. Paul. Thank you. Appreciate Cheers. It.